Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Good morning, everyone. Let's pray together. We are thankful for this day. We're thankful for the power of the resurrection, the same power at work in Christ to raise him from the dead is available to us at work in our hearts even today. So Lord, we pray as we sit at your feet, we would do like these women at the tomb. We would grasp for you and we would worship you. And we pray that you would bless our time in your word. And we ask this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, it's a great day to celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So great to see you all. We have been through the week called Holy Week, starting off last Sunday with Palm Sunday, with the triumphal entry, um, reenacting what Jesus experienced when he went into Jerusalem. Then, of course, we had Monday, Thursday, where we see the, the institution of the Lord's Supper and the washing of his disciples' feet, that master becoming a servant. And then, of course, Good Friday, where we have created this, I think, amazing tradition here at Church of the Redeemer. We nail our sins, those things that plague us, those things that are prescient to our lives today. We nail them to a cross physically. And then on the Easter vigil service, which is amazing last night, I think we got out of here about 1.15 a.m., that is, uh, we, we take those sins, we place them in a fire outside and burn them, and this is some of them, um, not all of them, of course, but it's this reminder that Jesus has taken away our sin. And then, of course, today we gather on Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday, but we started a new tradition here at Church of the Redeemer, so we've increasingly added these different facets to our life over the years. And last night, we added a new service, and it's called 2 a.m. at Cookout. So I have a photo, uh, hopefully for us. There you have it, 2 a.m. at Cookout. Uh, Angela Kay and I brought the average age of 25 up to 30, because um, anyone our age was at home sleeping, which is what we should have been doing the last time I went to cookout at that time, Scott Bosberg, David Williams, I made a tragic mistake. That cup that I'm drinking is water. I ate a hamburger and I had heartburn all night. So I have learned. Um, and so next year, you're invited at 2 a.m. to cookout. We'll see you there. Battleground 2411. As we celebrate the resurrection, and the hope of Jesus Christ, we also do so with two and a half billion men, women, and children from around the world. I received texts this morning from friends in, in Asia and Africa who have already been through these services. It's, it's staggering to think that one out of every three people who live, one out of every three men, women, and children alive in this world are identifying and celebrating this Easter Sunday, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we invite you into that celebration. And we pray today is a great day for you and your family and also for this Easter season. 
Today, I want to consider three really important phrases out of the gospel lesson today, out of Matthew, and hopefully give some of their meaning and their implications and see some great responses from the women and, of course, the disciples as well. The challenges of preaching on Easter Sunday are a little precarious, and I'd say there's three. There's three major challenges that any preacher who stands at a pulpit or a music stand or wherever the venue is and proclaims the resurrection or this. First of all, it was Chaucer who wrote the Canterbury Tales, 1300s. Chaucer once coined this great phrase, familiarity breeds contempt. So the message of the resurrection has the ability to be so familiar to us that we lose its beauty and its power. Chaucer. Uh, Stanley Hauerwas from Duke Divinity School said, and this is the second challenge, he said, the great enemy to the Christian faith is not atheism, or you might add in secularism, or all kinds of other isms. It's actually sentimentality. The idea that this is really a neat day to dress up and get pretty and come to church and kind of sing some songs. It's a sentimental experience for our religious life. It gives us good feelings and good vibes in this world. He says that's actually the greater enemy even than all the other isms out there and worldviews that wage against the Christian faith. And lastly, I would say the great challenge of preaching Easter Sunday is this, that some of us in this room today experience disbelief. I want to believe these things, or I want to want to believe these things or I'm having trouble believing these things. So please, preacher, don't patronize me with superficial slogan Christianity. Tell me something that changes my life. Now, those are the challenges, the, the great opportunity and privilege. And thank you, Dan, for asking me to preach today. This high privilege is because, and I say this year after year, anytime I get to talk about the resurrection, especially on Easter Sunday, if this isn't true, if this story is not true, well then, to quote the great 21st century North American theologian, James Hetfield, also the lead singer of Metallica, if this isn't true, then nothing else matters. That's the opportunity and the privilege of preaching on Easter Sunday. As I get to say this year after year, if it's not true, then why bother at all? It's sort of like Coke Zero. <laughs> now, the reason why I drink Coke Zero is I'm a little fluffy and thirsty. Um, but Coke Zero is not the choice. It's kind of why bother doing this? It's sort of also like decaf coffee. There's a little decaf coffee pot out there. One of the five canisters is decaf. It's sort of like, why bother with decaf when you can have the real stuff? If the resurrection is not true, then why bother with sentimentality or familiarity or disbelief? But if it's true, then everything changes. Then this story what we're hearing and celebrating this morning should be and is 
simply the most important thing. I believe it was C.S. Lewis who said it this way. He said, um, Christianity is either of no importance or infinite importance. What it cannot be is kind of important. Now, I will not mention a child by name in this room in my household, lest it cost me $10 now. Inflation's up. Gas prices are up. Used to be five bucks. They've gotten older. Their toys are more expensive, right? Sometimes they say, well, is your room clean? And they say, kind of, <laughs> right? And we always respond with, it is either clean or unclean. Depart from me, you unclean. No, we never say that. Um, it's not kind of. It's either true and of the most importance that you can give to any single thought in the world, or it's decaf coffee. Why bother with it? So let's look at these three phrases. You're welcome to turn in Matthew to Matthew chapter 28. Let's look at verse 6, and I want to expound these briefly. In early Christian preaching, and we do have a number of accounts of early sermons by leaders, one of the things that's not mentioned in early Christian preaching is the empty tomb. Of all the things that they talk about, they don't talk about the empty tomb. The reason most scholars would say they don't talk about the empty tomb is everyone assumed it was empty. No need to talk about something everyone knew as fact and truth. In fact, great scholars and skeptics through the centuries have all said the empty tomb is the big problem. If there's a body, it's decaf coffee. Where's the body? This is why when these women come to the tomb, Mary and Mary Magdalene, we believe, are the two. When they come very early in the morning, and by early in the morning, it's kind of cookout time. It's, it's not sunrise, although it's nice to have sunrise services, and it's very sentimental to do so. They were probably there still in darkness. And a few years ago, Angela Kay and I were in Jerusalem, so we actually saw there's two places where they think the tomb of Jesus is. The distance probably from where they were staying to each one of those tombs was probably a 45-minute walk. And so these, these women got up very early to go to the tomb to see, maybe for the last time, this man who had touched them and changed them, that they had worshipped and followed. They had given their life, and in Mary's case, he was her son. And they grieved his death. And they witnessed this cruel, terrible death. And with his death, also their hopes. Have you ever had something die that was a hope? Something that you really wanted to come true, really hoped would be the case. Someone or something. And to watch that hope be dashed brings in disillusion and disappointment and despair. So... Perhaps their intentions are very good, but the risk is very high because this is a political assassination. They, they're probably hoping maybe, just maybe, 
that these folks would, these soldiers would let us see the body, even though the tomb had already been sealed, and prepare it for its last burial um, scene. You know, it's, it's this disappointment sets in as we're seeking for something, hoping for something, and to find it disillusioned. I, I kind of consider it like being in line at the DMV. You get in line and you wait for an hour and then you get to the counter and the person says, did you bring your registration, insurance, license, passport, vial of blood, credit card, whatever it is, and you say no, and they go, get out. Get to the back of the line and you walk the walk of shame with your head down. It's disillusionment. But the thing about their disillusionment that's so important for us to hear this morning is that they, just like everyone else, had missed the most obvious thing, the subtle thread running through all the scriptures, that the death of Jesus was not defeat, but victory. Perhaps these Roman soldiers could assist him, perhaps one more glance to say our goodbyes and our final respects. What they encounter is an angel who says these powerful, powerful words. He is not here. He's not here. He's not here. And it's probably very perplexing to them at one level because you wouldn't walk that way and take those risks if you didn't expect to find the body in the tomb. Matthew tells us, and scholars would say, even before they got there, this earthquake had happened for the angel of the Lord came down from heaven, verse 2, and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. And the guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. He is not here. But he had been there because they'd seen him placed there. The most indicting statement to someone who claims to be God or the Son of God or one with God or before Abraham was, I am, was their dead, decaying, body. The Roman authorities knew this, which is why they sealed the tomb and they guarded it at pain of death for failure. In fact, crucifixion was so disgusting. It was so humiliating that Romans throughout antiquity didn't even talk about it. You know, we all kind of have that crazy family member, Uncle Joe or crazy aunt. I don't want to say a name because I might you might think I'm calling out someone in the room and I can't make one up on the spot. And we just kind of whisper about that uncle or that aunt or that crazy family member that causes all those problems. Crucifixion was so disgusting that Romans didn't even write about it or whisper about it at parties. And it was as if to say to all the enemies of Rome, you mess with us, this is what you get. Jesus' death was a humiliating, disgusting indictment of enemies of Rome. 
One time, my brother um, snuck in late at night, probably cookout time. That's a new term I've created this morning. It's 2 a.m. And he snuck in through the window. He's nine years older than me. Crawled in, and I heard him, and I woke up, and I, well, there was this lamp between us that had a little pull-down light. And I pulled the light down, and he could see my face. I couldn't see his. And I said, I'm telling mom and dad and turned the light off, and then I rolled over. And then maybe two minutes later, the light came on. He moved the lamp over so I could see his face. And he said, go ahead. They'll ground me for a month. You'll never walk again. (laughs) Right? So the crucifixion was not only this humiliating, disgusting death of Jesus. It was Rome's way of saying, if you come after us, If you mess with us, this is what you get. But the Apostle Paul says something about this crucifixion. He says this, we talk about it. We preach about it. We talk about what even these sophisticated, powerful Romans who enact this cruel torture, they don't talk about it. We'll talk about it. And we're going to tell you about it. We're going to preach about it, that it's a scandal. It's an offense to us. He says it's a stumbling block to Jews who are reminded of Rome's power and its foolishness to Gentiles, to the Greeks, this cross. But to those whom God has called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weaker than the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. The cross is not defeat. And these women went to the tomb expecting to find a body. He is not here. Second phrase. He has risen just as he said. The second point very crucial. The very words of Jesus have been ignored, forgotten, or either denied. He's risen just as he said. He said to them in Mark chapter 9, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they'll kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant, and they were afraid to ask him about it. This theme runs through all of Scripture. It's this idea of the suffering servant, the suffering Messiah. No one wants to talk about it. And no one wants to believe it because we like winners. That's what we want. We want a winning team. We want a winning cause. And the cross is scandal and humiliation and defeat. It's disgusting. And yet, Jesus told his disciples, this is what's going to happen to me. And then on the third day, I'll be raised again. They'd heard this many times. They knew their scriptures. This had run through the, the very beginning to Genesis, from Genesis 3 up to this point. Jesus said this to his disciples so much that they didn't even want to ask him about it. All along, the whole of scripture is telling us the story of a substitute. Now, when I was in school, a substitute meant chaos. 
it meant you could get away with things. When I was a junior, we had a substitute, and I went to her and I said, um, dear substitute, I get to go to other classes during this period because I'm a, I'm a rising senior. And the substitute said, okay. And so I proceeded to walk around and be the mayor at my high school. I got away with a lot in a substitute. But the story of substitution in the scriptures is one of replacing one who is guilty with one who is innocent. My favorite story, one of my favorite books, A Tale of Two Cities, the story boils down to this. Two men, one innocent, one guilty, one who was guilty and free and the other innocent and bound up, and they are identical lookalikes. They look exactly alike. Some say Dan Alger and I look exactly alike. These two, one guilty, one innocent men, and, and the guilty one switches places with the innocent one. And he loses his life to save the life of another. I heard stories, tragic ones, just even recently. A friend of mine was very involved in helping people escape Afghanistan. And tragic stories of people who had a guaranteed seat, who gave up their seat on a plane out to give to another person, to substitute their seat for someone else. I want you to know this. This is at the heart of the gospel. This is at the heart of forgiveness and God's mercy. It's at the heart of God's plan that he has substituted himself for our sins. When we burn these sins, we know that he has taken them from us. He has risen, just as he said. The great reversal out of devastation comes rescue. And that truth does two things. That phrase does two things to us. The first one is this. It either causes joy because I realize I was the one who got substituted. I've got joy. I can rejoice that God in Christ has reconciled himself to me through Jesus. Him who knew no sin became sin for us, for me, so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's that's the first response. That's He is risen. I have joy. I have hope in this life, no matter our circumstances. Hey, I got problems. We all have problems. And who's going to fix these problems? Recently, about a year ago, we had a sewer problem in our backyard. There's like a puddle of water. It's getting bigger. And we paid a guy to come clean it. And it got smaller. And then it got bigger again. We paid the guy to come back out and clean the sewer. We're on a septic system clean the sewer, and it didn't get smaller, but another hole popped up. I got these problems. Who's going to fix these problems? The gospel says our greatest problem is that we are separated from God. We're at enmity with God, except He has risen and taken our spot. This brings me 
to the second thing this does. He is risen. It produces joy. I sing with great joy and hope, even in daunting and challenging circumstances. The second aspect, the second response is this phrase, just as he said, do I believe his word? Do I believe this is true? Does it mark my life? Is it the worldview by which I see things? Resurrection. These are the two responses that we find today. This brings me to the third phrase. The angel says, he is not here. He is risen, just as he said. And thirdly, come and see. This is one of Jesus' great phrases. Come and see. Come and see the place where he lay. Come and see it. The thing about the Christian faith is it is not just an intellectual exercise. It's factual. The Apostle Paul says, hey, if he's not raised from the dead, if Christ really wasn't raised from the dead, walked out of the tomb, your faith is futile. It's useless. It's pointless. That's how some people conclude about this stuff. That's how I had been until 18 years of age. It's just pointless. Live it up. Get as much as you can for as long as you can. Eat, drink, and be merry for someday your story is going to be over and you're going to fizzle into the cosmos. That's the prevailing story without the resurrection. So the angel says to the Marys, come on in to the tomb. Come on in and see the place where he lay. Why come and see? Consider he was once there. He took on nature. He humbled himself that in his human nature, he really died like all of us will really die someday. Consider the betrayal and the injustice that put him there. He deserved not this death and not this way. We talk a lot about injustice in this world. Jesus is a true victim of injustice, but that injustice is what creates victory. It's why we sing and shout, Alleluia. Consider the death that could not hold him. And as Paul says in Romans, if you're united with him in a death like his, you'll be raised like him, which causes hope. If you trust in him, death will not be able to hold on to you either. What are the three great fears of humans? Number one, fear of death. Number two, fear of public speaking. Number three, fear of being seen naked. That's it. Death is the greatest fear. It's a monster. But death could not hold Jesus, and death in Christ will not hold you. You should not fear death. You should fear living an unpurposed, and non-Christ-seeking life. What do we see about the response? And I'll close with this. 
It says in verse 8, the women hurried away from the tomb. Now we know Mary stayed a little bit longer. Mary Magdalene, um, she hurried, but eventually they hurried away from the tomb in this great parentheses. They were afraid, yet filled with joy. Afraid, yet joyous. What are they afraid of? And they ran to tell his disciples. And suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. Just as the angels greeted the shepherds. Greetings. Just as the angel greeted Mary. It's the same term. Greetings, he, Jesus said to them. And they came to him. And they clasped his feet. And they worshipped him. That's their response. That's the response of a person who believes in the resurrection. And Jesus said, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. I think the, the approach of the women is so provocative for us because these women never doubted. They stayed with Jesus to the end. When they came to that tomb that morning, their grief was the grief of loss. Have you ever had the grief of loss? It's, it's, it's painful. You've lost something. You've lost a loved one. You've lost love. You've lost hope. It's the pain of loss. The other disciples, they had deserted Jesus. And they probably are just as grieved. That's probably why they didn't go to the tomb until after they heard from the women. Their grief was failure. They had failed him. They had deserted him in his great time of need. Peter, I will not deny you. Yes, you will, Peter. And they blew it. And listen, Jesus meets with both of them, the women and the men. And he tells them the gospel story. And he reminds them of some things that I want to close with this morning. God uses unimpressive people who believe and trust. If you are an unimpressive person and you believe in the resurrection, you are one of the most impressive people we could ever know. God uses unlikely people. He used women. No one, no one in antiquity would write a testimony with women in this day. They had no status, no value. Not only the women, but the fishermen and the tax collectors. God used unlikely people to tell his message, it's the beauty of the cross. It's not power and might. It's weakness and humility. And lastly, he used unqualified people. But what made them qualified is that they believed the resurrection was true. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the power of your word the glory of Christ on the cross, the beauty of his resurrection, the hope that we have in this world through him, and life everlasting to come. And we pray that this day in our hearts and our minds and with our family and friends and roommates and coworkers, that this day and this season would be a time to celebrate. You are risen, just as you said. Amen.